Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The East Coast tribe most associated with the first Thanksgiving is portrayed as partners with the nation's earliest colonists. While there was collaboration, the full picture is much more complicated. A new book by Wampanoag writer and historian Linda Coombs balances out the picture from a tribal viewpoint and gives a look at early tribal life. We'll hear from Coombs about her book, colonization, and the Wampanoag story. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. At the One Water Summit recently held in Tucson, Arizona, some Native young people had a chance to share their ideas, as Emma Vandenindy reports. It was the last session of the conference. Some of the youth were not sure if anyone would show up. But after the session was over, several attendees in the room were in tears. The youth are members of Ecotruce for Indigenous Youth, a team of students who are taught by elders about the earth and environmental policy. Eight-year-old Kiani Ross is Dene, Yaki, and Purepecha. She has one goal in mind. In golf courses, they're wasting a lot of water, gallons and gallons of water year after year, and they should use dirt instead because, like, come on, we're in the desert. Some youth express the need to balance housing development with water conservation. Others want to control water runoff with native plants. But the youth felt honored that they were listened to and hope more leaders will do the same as their solutions will impact them the rest of their lives. I'm Emma Vandenindy. This story supported by the Water Desk at the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism. A group of Native youth advocates recently attended a tribal youth forum in Washington, D.C. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman spoke with a young woman from the Wind River Reservation who went to the event. Maisie Countryman is a sophomore at Idaho State University. In addition to being a full-time student, she's part of the Executive Committee for Unity. That's the United National Indian Tribal Youth Organization. She's an enrolled member of the Northern Arapaho Tribe. Countrymen, along with 10 other Native youth leaders from the group, went to Washington, D.C. earlier this month. Countrymen spoke on a panel about boarding schools and the Indian Child Welfare Act. Most of our grandparents have gone through a residential school and have lived through that, and they just wanted us to give our perspectives on how it has affected us through generations. The forum is in its third year. Its goal is to create a space for federal officials to hear directly from Native youth. Countryman says when she graduates, she wants to work as a pharmacist on a reservation while continuing to advocate for Native youth. I'm Hannah Haberman. Little Bird is now streaming on PBS, as KNBA's Hannah Bissett tells us. It's a Canadian series that examines self-discovery and the 60s scoop. The series is called Little Bird and is streaming on Crave, a streaming platform, and has been one of its first drama series. Jennifer Poninsky is a First Nation and Jewish woman and has worked on the show for several years. She is a producer, actress, and director and began her work on Little Bird as early as 2015. She's been telling stories from an Indigenous perspective throughout her career. It makes, I think, all the difference because the complexity that comes from authentic storytelling is so much more rich and layered and nuanced than 
than what you get when other people tell our stories. The series focuses on an indigenous woman who is taken in something called the 60s scoop, a period in the 1950s to 1980s where young indigenous children were stolen and adopted out to non-indigenous families as a way to simulate them. Hundreds of thousands of children removed during this time. And although it doesn't represent every single person's story, we've done our best to create a story that that does reflect the most collective experience possible. Podemsky says that talking about these issues can highlight overlooked parts of history. We have a lot of history to retell in order to catch up with our modern scenarios and start to imagine ourselves into the future. I'm Hannah Bissett. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. The full picture of the earliest colonial contact with tribes on the East Coast is clouded by myths constructed by those who wrote the history of a peaceful meeting and a celebratory first Thanksgiving dinner. Linda Coombs, Wampanoag historian and author, offers a perspective from the tribe that greeted the pilgrims in a new book, Race to the Truth, Colonization and the Wampanoag Story. It's geared for both young readers and adults who read a first-hand account from a young member of the tribe witnessing European contact for the first time. The story adds color and detail of village life and how the community experiences sickness, conflict, and hardship brought on by encroaching foreigners. Coombs also gives insight about the true events behind the first Thanksgiving. We're talking with Linda Coombs today about her new book, and we welcome you to join us. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Mashpee, Massachusetts is Linda Coombs. She's a historian and author of Race to the Truth, Colonization, and the Wampanoag Story. She's Aquina Wampanoag. Hello, Linda. Welcome to Native America Calling. Uh, hello, Sean. Thank you for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show, Linda, and uh, congratulations on this new book. And, and I want to tell you, yesterday I had a friend who listens to our show a lot. She texted me, and she was curious to know how we handle Thanksgiving in my house, me, my wife, and my daughter. And I'm thinking you probably get that same question a lot, too. Oh, yeah. Get it, get it all the time. Um... I think, you know, a, a lot of people do sit down and have dinner with family. 
Um, and a lot of people here, you know, also uh, from the area, go to the National Day of Mourning up in Plymouth, which is held every year on Thanksgiving Day, you know, up on Coles Hill, which is above Plymouth Rock, um, where they have speakers and, you know, um, ceremony, singing, and, and, and everything like that to, to talk about what's going on today here and across the country, really. Right, right. Well, I think in my lifetime, it just seems the perspective has really changed, um, especially within Native communities. So do you think there's a reckoning occurring right now with regard to how we as Native people and others are reexamining Thanksgiving? Um, I, I'm not really aware myself of what's going on, what other Native people are doing with Thanksgiving, because um, here, I mean, my background is in museum work, so I've dealt largely with the public and just with Thanksgiving and with history in general, I do see, you know, a much more positive turn, you know, that people are more open to hearing the actual truth, mm-hmm. regardless of how difficult wanting to understand that history. So, Well, tell us more. What did you do yesterday, Linda? Uh, I was in... Uh, Providence, Rhode Island, actually. Um, my cousin and I, who's also a Quina, uh, had gone to a concert the night before, and we're making our way back home uh, yesterday. So, okay, we we did. Any so do you do you make any acknowledgement then of Thanksgiving and from the from the perspective of most Americans with the turkey and the dressing and just talking about any of the kind of traditional American perspectives of the holiday, or do you just com- you ignore it, or do you kind of acknowledge it in your own way? Tell us. Um, well, for, for, you know, a number of decades, I went to the day of mourning. But mm-hmm. um, I, I have no problem with the turkey dinner because turkey, corn, beans, squash, pumpkin, cranberries, those are all traditional Wampanoag foods. So I, I have no problem eating them on Thanksgiving Day or any other day. So. All right, all right. Well, I feel good because I ate a lot of turkey last yesterday. So I, <laughs> I was gonna, I was worried you might make me feel guilty for enjoying a good turkey <laughs> turkey dinner yesterday, Linda. Well, let's talk more about your book, Colonization and the Wampanoag Story. I've got a, a copy of it in my hands right now. Beautiful cover art. Uh, tell us more. How does it start out? Um, I was uh, contacted by a woman uh, about two and a half years ago now, in April of 21, and it was a new organization then, um, Race to Dinner, Race Number Two Dinner. And their first project, you know, their, their issue was to address racism in different cultures across the country. Um, but their first project was to produce this uh, series of books on racism from different cultures, and they were asking me to do racism with Native Americans. And, you know, my my work in museums has been really focused on Wampanoag, Southern New England. I've been very fortunate to be able to have that focus, but much broader is, you know, a bit out of my wheelhouse. And, you know, we finally got it down. Well, write what you know. (laughs) So Mm. that's what I did. In the book, you know, uh, there's the black pages and the white pages. The white pages are actually, you know, actual history, starting with the Doctrine of Discovery 
uh, up to Columbus, to the explorers that were coming here to the East Coast, to the pilgrim settling, and then coming forward to present day. The part of the book that's on the black pages is a story that I wrote based on everything I've learned, either from my work, from my family, from my tribes, from tribes with, within the area or with a similar material culture. Um, and I, I just uh, wrote the story to illustrate what our traditional life was like to the best of my ability. And because I feel that colonization can be better understood when people realize what the impacts actually were and how they did affect us. Mm -hmm. The different color, the contrasting page colors, I, I found that really intriguing and it definitely provides a different tone for these different elements uh, of the book like you describe it's it's really cool i really like that and so i think for a lot of folks especially any anybody who's listening to the show linda who's non-native they they heard the story that so many young people here in schools and they still hear in schools about the pilgrims and, and the first thanksgiving so tell us a little bit more about the story here and when it starts and how it deviates from that American perspective that so many of us learned in school growing up. Um, actually, when I when I started to write the book, I wasn't even going to talk about Thanksgiving hmm. because uh, there, there's a Passamaquoddy author, Chris Newell, who had just come out with a book on Plymouth and the first Thanksgiving. You know, um, and I'm like, okay, cool. I don't because you know, as a Wampanoag, it's like our thing to answer these questions about Thanksgiving. And, um, but, you know, people um, always think that we, and, and you said this, that we greeted the pilgrims. We, we didn't. The pilgrims happened to sail into Wampanoag territory and settle on the grounds of our village of Patuxet. Uh, but there was no one there to greet them. It was December. Um, people were inland away from the ocean. And we'd also, two years prior, as I, you know, um, wrote about in the book, just, you know, suffered this huge plague that wiped out 75 to 90 percent of our population. Um, and the Mayflower was the one of the, the the ship that where people first came to settle here. Others, there were ships going back and forth for 100 years. Um, but so the story of Thanksgiving, I just have one little chapter in the book. I. I Apparently, I couldn't get away from telling it, so my editor requested that I write about it, so I, I did. And I just recounted uh, the one source uh, from the 17th century that, that tells about um, our Sachem Massasoit going into Plymouth with 90 men, staying for three days and celebrating, playing games. The Wampanoag men went out and got five deer to contribute to the feast, um, and that's really about it. That's, that's what's in the historical record about the quote-unquote first Thanksgiving, which it was not called in the 17th century. That's a 19th century designation. Um, mm -hmm. And anything else that's aside from that is added on, elaborated upon, you know, to, uh, to fluff out the story, the mythology, if you will. All right. All right. And Linda, you also make it clear that uh, there wasn't this welcoming. It wasn't like the Wampanoag were standing there on the coast 
as the boat came in. They lived inland during that time, especially during the winter months. They wouldn't have been, been anywhere near the coast. Is that right? Well, I mean, you know, we, we weren't, you know, people often think we were like nomadic and went like 3,000 miles away but or something like that. But in reality, I mean, we did live along the coast in the summer, uh, mm. you know, but land away from the winds that come off the ocean, but inland could be like a mile. It didn't have to be very far at all, you know. And in the town of Plymouth today, where the, the Plymouth Public Library is, that's the site of a winter village. So, which is, you know, I don't think it's even a mile uh, from the from the ocean, but in the 17th century, it would have been very wooded and protected. So. Mm -hmm. The book is titled Colonization and the Wampanoag Story, and the author is Linda Coombs, and we have her on the show today, right now. It is Friday, and we are learning more about this new book and the series that is a part of called Race to the Truth. And Linda is explaining more of the history from a Native perspective. And we're going to talk more with Linda after this short break. But I invite anybody listening to the show today, give us a call. Tell us uh, what your perspective is on the first Thanksgiving or just your knowledge of the first colonial contact here in Turtle Island. What do you know about it? What happened? What do your people say? What are the legends? What are the stories? And uh, we're going to hear more from Linda and the Wampanoag stories and the Wampanoag history and the Wampanoag perspective here on Native America Calling. Our phone lines are open now, 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. A breast cancer diagnosis was a wake-up call on several levels for Tesha Hawley. The hurdles of treating the disease drained her financially and emotionally. Afterwards, she found resolve to help others in her community facing similar setbacks. We'll hear Hawley's story on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're talking with Linda Coombs today about her new book, Race to the Truth, Colonization, and the Wampanoag Story. As a historian, she tells the truth about first contact on the East Coast. And as an author, she gives young readers a character named Little Bird, whose firsthand accounts create a colorful picture of the Wampanoag people. How do you teach young people, children, and students about the history of colonization and Thanksgiving? Let us know at one 800 996-2848. Linda, in addition to this overly romanticized narrative of Thanksgiving that you talked about earlier, what are some other untruths or problematic narratives that your book dispels? Uh, well, hopefully it, it, it dispels that 
there are no Wampanoag people left. Because uh, 20, even 20 to 30 years ago, we were still getting that question. I, I worked for uh, 30 years at uh, Plymouth Plantation. I'm in the Wampanoag Indigenous Program, which is an outdoor living history site. Um, and people were surprised that we still existed. Um, they wanted to know if we were real Indians. Um, mm -hmm. They surprised that we knew we were Indian at all, that we still knew anything about our culture or whether we had our language, um, you know. And people, the, the history that I describe in the book, uh, even now people largely have no idea that that went on here. Um, and that point was actually made very clear to me a few years ago when I was co-directing a teacher institute. And we actually had a 25 teachers had 10 native uh, people in as participants. And I went through this whole, essentially I have a workshop where I, which is everything that I put into the white pages of the book. And um, when we got through with the whole thing, uh, there was one native teacher who said to me, I had no idea you guys went through all that. And I was like, that it just struck me because what I described was what every tribe in the country went through in some form or fashion or sequence or whatever um, is still going through. And of course we went through it. You know, they didn't like bypass us, they pull up on the beach and bypass us and head west. They, they did all this stuff to us, this colonization. And, um, and so I think it's extremely important that people come to understand this history. In, in my opinion, you're not going to have a proper perspective on American history until you can incorporate Native American history. Linda, let's take a caller. Regina is listening in Porcupine, South Dakota, on Keeley. It's a tribal radio station there serving the Pine Ridge community. Hello, Regina. Welcome. You're on Native America Calling. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, I have a story, and this is about uh, the Pequot tribe along the coast of, uh, along the East Coast. And um, they taught the pilgrims how to cook, I mean, how to uh, plant and harvest, and and then they were going to, they had a Thanksgiving. And uh, what happened with us uh, at the end of the, uh, whenever they, harvested then they offered thanksgiving and um then this uh, this reverend they wanted more and more and but the following year they came back and uh in the middle of the night they burned the pequot village down to they were burnt up 800 people 800 pequot people and then the reverend says today we sent 800 souls to hell um, today we give Thanksgiving for sending 800 Pequot to hell. And mm. uh, I read that. So, um, yeah, whatever he saw, whatever this book teller is telling is stories that need to be written, the history of our people across this nation. So I thank her very much for her book. And thank you. Well, thank you, Regina, for that call. And, uh, I've heard similar stories. I've heard a similar narrative myself. Uh, Linda, please comment 
to Regina with regard to this, uh, the Pequot perspective of this massacre that occurred. Is, is that covered at all in your book? Um, I don't. I didn't mention the Pequot War as it's referred to. At least I don't think I did. I can't even remember. Um, but uh, I can tell you about it. It was not the Pequot who showed the pilgrims how to plant corn and whatnot. That was the Wampanoags. That was in 1621, the spring of 21. Um, and the Pequot War, however, did happen, but it was in 1637. So it did not happen like right after the first harvest. Okay, it was 16 years later, okay? Um, and what happened was, I mean, the Pequots are in uh, the state of Connecticut now, in uh, southern Connecticut, near uh, the coast and near the Connecticut River. Okay, the river is a highway into the inland, okay, where all the uh, furs, timber, whatever other um, resources, quote-unquote, they were looking for the English, um, and the Pequots at the time were one of the considered one of the strongest tribes in southern New England. Um, they had not suffered the um, the first plague between 1616 and 1618 that I mentioned earlier that Wampanoag people did, because um, that plague stopped when it hit Narragansett Bay, which is east of Pequot country. Um, but uh, the caller was right because the English did attack the Pequot. They they surrounded the village. They set fire to it. And when people ran out of the, the gate, there was it was a palisaded village. And when they ran out of the gate to get away from the fire, they were shot. Um, mm. And that was purely to get rid of the Pequots as one of the stronger indigenous nations. So they would have access up the river. To, to the to the resources, okay. All right. That, that's what happened. However, one one point I would like to make, if I could have a moment, um, is that in the English religion of the time, they did have what they called days of humiliation, days of Thanksgiving, two different days, uh, Thanksgiving with a small t, and. When they had the Pequot massacre, they did hold a day of Thanksgiving, uh, which is a religious observance where they thanked God that they vanquished their enemies, as they put it in the sources, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the first Thanksgiving was back in 1621. The modern holiday is based on that first Thanksgiving harvest of 1621, not the Pequot Massacre Day of Thanksgiving business um, religious observance of the English in 1637. Okay, I, right. I hear that a lot. And, you know, and I, it's, to me, it's from some people who don't understand the history, and I don't, I completely understand they don't, because it's not largely out there, at least not yet. Um, but it's very important a point of clarification to make, I feel. It is. Linda, it really underscores just how much misinformation is out there or misunderstanding of these historical events in this this timeline that you're describing. So 
I think that really just adds to the importance and relevance of your book. And also just listening to Regina and you as well recount this this massacre that occurred to the Peacock people. And Linda, this book is it's meant for for young readers. Um, my daughter's nine, and I've shared this with her, and we're going to read a little bit more this weekend. But how do you write about a history that is is so full of conflict and war and massacre for a young reader? How do you approach that? Um, I. I, actually, I think that's a question that I'm kind of still working on. I, I am not a classroom teacher by profession, so I don't specifically deal with that. Um, I have done some work with the curriculum frameworks in the state of Massachusetts, and they are, you know, for future frameworks coming up, like really engaging more with this history and being very more frank about it. Um, which is very heartening because it's finally getting to the truth of it. You know, um, when I first started to write this book, I showed a couple of chapters like on Columbus and the doctrine of discovery and whatnot to my granddaughter, who was 12 at the time. And she read it and like didn't turn a hair. And she's like, oh, yeah, it's really good. I'm like, okay, thanks, Jayla. Because you know? <laughs> um, I, I couldn't tell if like she absorbed what she read or but they seem to be being just more truthful or at least starting to, at least in Massachusetts. And I know that there, there is a group that deals with uh, curriculum frameworks from all states uh, in terms of their uh, inclusion or representation of Native American history and people in, in, in whatever the state is. So, um, but I think generally the truth has to be told because I, right. I just feel that it happened. It needs to be told. And, and as, as Chris Newell, who I was mentioning a little while ago, I, I heard him say, you know, our kids had to go through this stuff when mm. they were babies, five, when they were 10. And so we, we don't need to dress it down for, for other children. Cause it, um, so th there's that I'll put that up there. I don't disagree. Okay. And Linda, going back to, okay, so the holiday that so many Americans celebrated yesterday, eating turkey, watching football games, pumpkin pie, all that stuff. When exactly did that come about? And to what extent is it inspired by this, whatever you want to call this convening that occurred back in 1621 with your people and the European colonists? Um. That actually came about in the 19th century. Um, I, I guess there were versions of, you know, there was not a Thanksgiving like every year from 1621 onward. You know, that mm -hmm. was a one-time event between pilgrims and, and Wampanoag people. Um, but over the years, throughout the next couple of centuries, there were different versions of Thanksgiving um, but it didn't become solidified, if you will, until the 19th century when Abraham Lincoln uh, made a proclamation making the fourth Thursday of the month uh, an official American holiday, you know, of Thanksgiving. And I think he mentions in that the Indians sitting down with the pilgrims and so on. And it, it got all wrapped up in that 
mythology there. And also in the 19th century, there was a man named Alexander Young who wrote a book called Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers. And uh, all he did was rewrite a 17th century source, uh, Mort's Relation, uh, maybe Good News from New England, which are both 17th century sources written by the pilgrims themselves. Um, and he just updated the, the English language, the punctuation, um, you know, the spelling is standardized, so it's just much easier to read. And in the book, he does quote the one little passage where he talks about Massasoit going in with 90 men, and they stayed three days, and the whole thing, and the five deer. And um, then at the bottom of the page, there's a little footnote that says, this was the first Thanksgiving with a capital F and a capital T. And it took off from there. Thanksgiving became a holiday that, or, you know, something that was used when immigrants were coming into the country to help uh, Americanize them. And it just became ingrained in people's psyches as this myth, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for that background, Linda. Let's talk a little bit more about this story, this perspective of this young Wampanoag young man who encounters the Europeans. His name is is Little Bird. How'd that no, all come about, girl. this idea? Or, I'm sorry, the, the girl. I'm sorry, the girl, yeah. Little Bird. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Um, well, I had to, like I said, I, I just believe that people have to have some, at least awareness, understanding of what our traditional life was like prior to any European contact, okay? Because um, people don't. Um, they, you know, it's, they still don't. There's, there's some awareness, but it's not enough, I guess. Um, so I wanted to, to show that, you know, give a sense of what our life was like. So this is a year in the life of Little Bird and her family and her extended family, you know, um, all the cousins and whatnot, because that's how it was and that's how it is and, and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And, and everything that's in there that they do throughout the year it comes from my own life experience, um, just learning stuff from my own tribal family, from other tribes, or you know, people in the in the area of Southern New England, or you know, all of that, you know, things I've from all the reading I've done, um, whatever. Um, and Linda, yeah, family. you know, you know one, uh huh. One 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 aspect of this story that that I think is really cool, Little Bird has a, has a younger sister, and her name, it's spelled Pumpkin Seed. And I just had to, I really chuckled at that because that's the native pronunciation there. Did you make sure to to spell it like that with an N, Pumpkin Seed? I absolutely did. That that's that's how these little fish are referred to. They're pumpkin seeds. They're little fish, you know, so they look like a pumpkin seed, but you you hear, you know, pumpkin seed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, you hear it all the time. Yep. Yeah, I was on a panel the other day, and there was a, a woman from Mashpee on there with me, and she's talking about getting heron. And she's going, it's, it's not a bird like a blue heron. It's a fish that usually you would say herring with a G, but in Mashpee we say heron. You know, and, and you go heron in, you know. So it's like people have their own 
dialect of English, if you will, you know. Yeah, no, no, it's you really captured uh, the way the, the word is pronounced in, in, in many native communities, for sure. We're going to have to take another break here in, in just a moment. But let's get some more calls going. I'd really love to hear from anybody today. What did you do yesterday? on Thanksgiving. Did you did you watch football? Did you eat turkey? Did you get ready for Black Friday? Or did you think more about some of these issues that we're discussing today with regard to the holiday, the historical issues, some of the problematic issues of the past and the way the holiday has been misrepresented or mischaracterized with regard to American history? Did you reflect on that at all? Let us know. 1-800- Nine nine six two eight four eight. Let's get some more calls. One eight hundred nine nine native. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at sweetgrasstradingco.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. This is Native America Calling, and we're talking with Wampanoag historian and author Linda Coombs. Her new book is part of a young reader series called Race to the Truth that tells the Native perspective of certain chapters in American history. There's still time to tell us how you first learned about colonization in America. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Linda, you have a lot of really, really nice illustrations, graphics, and photos in your book, along with the stories. Who are some of the artists that you worked with? Um, I worked with, um, or I got permission to use their 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 uh, paintings. Uh, Robert Peters, who's a Mashpee Wampanoag. Uh, Ryan Derby, the Quina. Um, trying to think here. Of uh, I had, um, you know, a number of other sources. Uh, the painting of Caleb Chishatiamuk, who is, uh, 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 he's from, well, he's from Martha's Vineyard anyway, a uh, Wampanoag man, the first person to graduate from the Harvard Indian College in about 1665. Uh, Harvard commissioned that painting to be made because, of course, there weren't cameras back then, but, um, and we created created what he uh, recreated, what he looked like. I also worked with um, a, a Mashpee Wampanoag company, Smoke Signals, uh, to use some of their photographs um, that are in uh, probably the earlier part of the, the colonization stuff um, because those were recreated scenes that were used in making uh, various exhibits that we have here. Um, I also got permission to use... Uh, a painting of the first Thanksgiving by a, a non-native artist, Karen Ronaldo, because that one painting of hers is uh, said to be the most accurate one 
because usually you see, you know, a bunch of pilgrims and a couple of Indians over in the corner. That's all the 19th century renditions of this event. But mm-hmm. she managed to get, you know, 90 Wampanoag people and 52 English people. Because the 52 English were those that survived that first winter uh, to have the successful harvest to which Massasoit 90 men went to. Um, so, that you know, there's a variety of sources. Um, there's a picture of a Nantucket Wampanoag woman, Dorcas Honorable, who was a slave. She was born in the mid-18th century and lived into the 19th century. Um, and that picture is online. You can just find it online. So there's a variety of sources that we got these images from. Well, you mentioned slavery, Linda, and that's another aspect of the book, as you, you write at length about the history of indigenous people being enslaved in the Americas uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, that, you know, is something that is not nearly as well known yet as, as black slavery. Um, and yet, right along with the black people that were being brought to this coast in the 17th century, there were, you know, also many Indian slaves. Um, in the 17th century, Indian people were just shipped out just to be to get them out of here, especially after King Philip's War in 1675. Shiploads of men were brought down to the West Indies where they were sold into slavery, not just Wampanoag, but all the tribes in the area, the Narragansett, Nipmuc, uh, Niantic, uh, Mohegan, Pequot, um, <clears throat> simply to get them out of here, because if there's no men, there's no resistance to English, you know, encroachment. Mm-hmm. Um, one, Linda. One, sorry. I Yeah, yeah, no, no. I um, I also w- am fascinated looking at the book. There's a history of Indian districts and, and information about the erasure of mapping. And can you tell us more about the damage done by some of these maps and, and the renaming of indigenous locations and places? Um, that constitutes a form of erasure because we had names for the place, for our villages, for different areas, uh, for the rivers, the lakes, the ponds, you know, all of it. We had names for all these places. And those are gone. And if you drive around the area, um, you'll see all sorts of street signs or other signs that have, you know, uh, an Indian, or in this case, a Wampanoag word as a street name or whatever. Um, but, you know, these were replaced. I mean, like Martha's Vineyard. That was named by uh, Bartholomew Gosnold, who, who named it after his daughter, Martha, and the fact that there were a lot of grapes. So, the, you know, our name for that place became, you know, displaced, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And I um, I worked on a project to translate some place names and people's names that were taken from 17th century maps and deeds. And I'm thinking, oh, good. Maybe these names will be more, more accurate, seeing that they're from the 17th century, because a lot of the names that you do see around are so corrupted in English forms of them that sometimes they're not even translatable because not enough of the original words left, you know. But even then, the English people in the 17th century that were writing these documents, um, 
either didn't hear or they, they just don't bother to put on the first letter because it's inconvenient sound in English or, you know, a num- so erasure happens, you know. Um, and it's a lot of work to try to, you know, bring that information back. Mm-hmm. Linda, let's take another call. Laura listening in Corrales, New Mexico on station KUNM. Hello, Laura. How are you doing? Hello, Linda. Um, I, this is I, There's always great shows on this program, but this is one of the most important I've heard in a long time. And um, the first thing I wanted to say, because the question that was asked is, how did you first learn about colonization? And I actually, growing up here in New Mexico, had a pretty progressive history teacher in like fourth, fifth grade who was the first time I'd ever heard that Hitler, when he was incarcerated, was actually studying horrifically how well we had um, basically genocidally massacred the First Nations populations here, and we were part of a template he used um, to go after the Jews and Gypsies. So that was that was an early um, sort of understanding of how utterly horrific this was. But the question I have for you is... Um, what can we do to get what your your brilliant, amazing, important work like into uh, historical curriculum across the country? Thanks for that caller, uh, Linda. Please respond. How can your book be more accessible? Um, I I think um, I actually think that was the intent uh, with with the age group that it was written for, which was like seventh grade. Um, my understanding is that the publisher would be marketing it to the schools. So I hope I'm correct in saying that. Um, and I mean, here, you know, in uh, Massachusetts, it seems to be selling like wildfire and, and teachers and everybody are buying it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't say about and- that. So the book is selling well. And what's some of the initial feedback you're hearing, uh, Linda, from readers or, or teachers and others? Um, everyone just seems to just love it. There's like so much in it that they didn't know that they're learning. And, you know, there's a lot of material that they can develop into a lesson plan. I, I think one of the most important responses that I got from it, because I was very nervous about how Native people and Wampanoag people would respond to it. Because, you know, the, the Native people in this area have more of an understanding or awareness of this history than non-Natives or even Native people from other parts of the country who at least have, you know, overall understanding of colonization but may understand their own history more clearly, you know. Um, and I, I ran across a, another elder lady from Mashpee who can be tough and critical and she just, she looked at me and I hadn't even said anything. I just happened to see her and she was like, oh, she says, I'm, I'm reading your book and I'm really enjoying it. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. You know, thank goodness. <laughs> I don't have to worry about anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> that was a tough critic and you, and you got a pass there. That sounds good. Yeah. That sounds good, Linda. That's wonderful. Let's hear from Mary now listening in Ashland, Wisconsin on station WOJB. Hello, Mary. Welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I'm um, so happy to hear this important program, and it's the women who are, you know, continuing to uh, um, cultivate the the cultural land here in white America so that we understand 
nobody was uh, uh, ever uh, uh, welcoming the pilgrims, that it was genocidal removal and massacre of the men. And ultimately, just like what happened to Menominee tribe, the, the, the beautiful Menominee and the, the timber that grows here, the United States government tried to dissolve the tribal uh, status of Menominee and I believe Wapadonk. Is is that correct, Linda? Um, I don't know if the federal government ever did that. Um, we we had you know 150 years of colonization prior to. 1776 when America, when the federal government as we know it now was established. And I think, you know, a, a lot of times we, the, you know, by that point in time, we were in a place where other people thought of us as no longer a problem. Uh, there was no Indian problem here anymore, um, or they just thought we had all disappeared. And of course, there was a lot of stuff going on with local people and stuff, but the general perception was that. And, but, you know, both the Aquina Wampanoag tribe from Martha's Vineyard and the Mashpee Wampanoag tribes here in, in Mashpee on Cape Cod um, are federally recognized tribes and, and have not had issues as such with the federal government, but have had other issues, you know, uh, maintaining um, our lands and, and all of that sort of thing for, for a variety of reasons. Um, Mashpee mm -hmm. just got their land trust just re reestablished like a couple of weeks ago, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's constant. Linda, can you talk more about King Philip's war in 1675, the significance of that? Because you write in the book that after that war, life changed dramatically for all indigenous people in the region. Yep. Um, King Philip was, uh, his actual name was Pometacom. And prior to English settlement and plagues and everything, we had um, a territory that spanned from the Merrimack River, which is north of Boston, over west to the Concord River. And you can kind of follow a straight line down to Narragansett Bay and then Cape Cod and the islands. All of that was Wampanoag-speaking people, okay? And within that area, we had 69 villages, of which Mashpee was one, Aquina was one, Patuxet, which is Plymouth, was one. Um, another one was Poconoket, which is where Warren and Bristol, Rhode Island are now. And Poconoket is where Massasoit was from and where Pometacom was from. And Pometacom was one of Mass's younger son, uh, Massasoit's younger son. And Massasoit, every, I think everyone's familiar with the treaty that, or what's called a treaty, uh, that Massasoit agreed to with the Pilgrims in 1621. I'd rather refer to it as an alliance of mutual protection, because that's more to the point of what was actually, you know, uh, considered between them. And, and people adhered to that, to the peace terms of it, you know, up until Massasoit's death, which was either in 1660 or 62. And not that everyone agreed with it, but they just didn't act been wanting to 
because of that and the way that ours Mm. Interesting, interesting. Linda, any other um, key takeaways or key historical events that uh, you write about in Colonization and the Wampanoag story that you that you want to cover? We're going to have to wrap up the show in about another minute. Well, let me just finish with the King Philip thing, because I think that's probably key, because it led to everything else. By the time Philip became Sachem, he saw there was like everything that I wrote in the book had been going on, and he saw a complete loss of land, language, culture, people, everything. We'd lose the land, we'd lose our culture, and he tried to rally all of the tribes in the area. Some people joined him, some people didn't, to push the English back against the water, and um, there just were not enough of us. You know, the English finally learned that if they followed our techniques of, like, camouflage and tracking and, um, you know, being able to move through the woods quietly and whatnot, um, that they could win over us, and that's exactly what happened. Um, those people later became, like, Rogers Rangers, the Texas Rangers, and that's how they became that. That's when it started. But because we lost the war, the English won, and they were just you know, there weren't enough of us. They were, they, we had been killed off or we had been shipped out and there were not enough of us left to, you know, put up a resistance of a military type anyway. Um, there's lots of resistance. It just wasn't military, shall we say. Um, mm-hmm. Just It went from there. Well, Linda, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your new book, Colonization and the Wampanoag Story. Congratulations again, and thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Folks, we are going to have to wrap up the conversation now, but we will be back next week with another lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves-Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. <laughs> It's made it here the marketplace open enrollment as the case. Sanaton is a queen of two. As not I you yan the Kania Nantona Mistaqua Mosawa Shua to the Eastern Healthcare Dagov Kinawa Nanta Eastern 1-800-318-2596 and Penanakan of two. Look at centers for Medicare and Medicaid services don't pen and it look and our elaqua. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.